And there ends the reading chapter 20, excuse me, chapter 41, verses 41 to 57. I want to call your attention to particularly verse 56 again. I'll call this our theme verse. The famine was over all the face of the earth, and Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, and the famine became severe in the land of Egypt. So in this chapter, we see how even what appear to be the free choices and decisions of men are ordained by God to work toward the fulfillment of His purpose in the world. I mean, who would have ever supposed the selling of Joseph into slavery would one day result in his becoming the most powerful man in the known world? I mean, who would have ever imagined that the false accusations laid against him by Potiphar's wife would lead to his becoming the instrument whereby all of Egypt and then ultimately the people of Israel would be saved from a famine. Time and again, the Bible reminds us that history is going somewhere. There's a beginning of all things, and there will be a consummation of all things. And God has a purpose that He is accomplishing, in this case, through Joseph and the Pharaoh, and broadly speaking, through you and me. Now, from the beginning of the book of Genesis, we learned that God's plan was to raise up a Redeemer to deliver His people from their sins and to continue the purpose of the Garden of Eden, the the plan of paradise, if you will. Here in chapter 41, we have a marvelous picture of God raising up this man Joseph to be the agent by which all the members of the house of Israel are going to be delivered from starvation. And it's important to realize that this story doesn't stand alone and apart from the rest of the Bible. Well, it doesn't stand alone from the rest of what we've read up to this point in Genesis, of course, and especially in the narrative of the life of Joseph. But the point is, it it doesn't even stand alone and apart from the rest of the entire Bible. Because this event, these happenings are a foreshadowing, a forecasting, of the sovereign mercy and grace of God in bringing redemption to the ends of the earth. Now the text tells us that Joseph filled up the vast storehouses of Egypt with grain. And our theme verse shows us what he did with those storehouses and with that grain. He opened up all the storehouses. And so this morning I'd like for us to think about the comparison between Joseph's opening up the storehouses and to Christ opening up the storehouse of God's mercy and grace and salvation. There are many things you could do with this text. There are many applications and comparisons. I'm going to focus on this particular one today. And there are four points that I want to share with you about this. First of all, Joseph opened the storehouses of Egypt on the authority of the king. Now the Pharaoh, of course, was the head, the divine king of the country, according to their belief. He was the lawgiver. He was the dispenser of justice. And he was worshipped as a god. Look again at verse 55, chapter 41. I'll read it this time from the New American Standard Translation. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, notice what he says, go to Joseph. Whatever he says to you, you shall do. So that means if you lived in Egypt, 
and you needed to talk to the king, the pharaoh, you had one and only one way of getting to him, and that was through Joseph. And so it is the same with God our Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, my friends. You know, uh, we live in a world, a culture now, where people have no basic understanding of biblical faith. Now, as I look around this room, and perhaps to some listening by means of audio, you may remember a time when that was not so much the case, where there was more of a broad-based biblical understanding of faith. I may not have been, now I'm not saying every 10-year-old was a theologian, but generally in the 1950s and 60s and the so-called baby boom generation, and of course earlier, people in Christian communities across these United States operated for more or less a biblical worldview, however imperfect they held it. But today, this is no longer the case, and so consequently, the truths of our Christian faith the truths of the Bible are no longer being learned or taught as they once were. And one of the consequences of that is that we have an entire generation of people who think, among other things, it doesn't really matter what you believe. As far as God is concerned, they think what really matters is that you be sincere in whatever you believe. How many times have you heard that? I know I've heard this pretty much all my life. Well, I don't think it matters so much about what so-and-so believes, but I think they're very sincere, and that's what matters. I don't even know what that means. Our community are full of people who, if you would ask them, they would tell you without hesitation that a Buddhist, a Hindu, a Muslim, a Jew have just as much access to God as any Christian does. And it really doesn't matter which God you believe in, so they say, or which religion you are, in the long run, because they're all basically the same. Now, of course, on so many different levels, that is simply false. And the most fundamental level where it is false is also the most fundamental level where especially Americans can't think straight anymore. And I mean the level of simple, basic logic. And let me just give you a, a very quick lesson. It's called the law of contradiction, or you'll hear it sometimes called the law of non-contradiction. And that law says this, basic rule of reality. I can't be standing here in front of you and at the same time be down the hallway in my office. A thing cannot be and not be at the same time. A leather-bound Bible can't be black and tan at the same time, completely black, completely tan. Two plus two cannot equal four, and it cannot also equal five. These are simple basic rules. If, if these rules were not in place, and they're given to us by God, they're built into his creation, they're built into the fabric of our being created in his image that we can think straight, there would be total chaos in the world. And so on that fundamental level, people who tell you that it doesn't matter what you believe because all religions are basically true, that's false. Those are words that will lead you ultimately to spiritual disaster. And here's why. Apart from the logic side of it, there's only one God, maker of heaven and earth, and the only way that you may approach this one true God is through His Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And again, applying the logic to it, if God has said, no man cometh unto the Father but by me, Jesus says that in John 14, 6, well, that can't be and not be at the same time. 
if there's some other way to approach the Father, then what Jesus said cannot be true. And if what Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man cometh unto the Father by me is true, then the other paths to God cannot be. There's no other way to the Father than through Jesus, just as there was no other way that you could get to the Pharaoh without going through Joseph. The Apostle Peter echoed these very words and ideas on the day of Pentecost after he stood up to both the Roman and Jewish government authorities and he boldly declared to them, There is salvation neither in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It's not Caesar. It's not the ceremonial law of Moses. It's Christ Jesus of Nazareth. Now, there's another similarity between Joseph and Christ that's seen in the command that the king of Egypt gave about Joseph's authority. Look again at verse 55. He tells the people they must obey Joseph. If the people of Egypt want to be good, loyal Egyptians and please their king, then they must obey what Joseph tells them to do. And my friends, it's the same with our Lord Jesus Christ. If we want to honor and obey God, the Father, then we must submit to his Son. John chapter 5, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son, does not honor the Father who sent him. Now, people, again, today, they, there's this sort of broad idea. And this is an, I, mean, I don't mean just like in the, you know, the, the, the 2000s or the early 21st century. I mean, this goes way back in people's thinking. They assume, hey, I'm just okay with God. You know, there's the story of uh, Henry David Thoreau, the author of Walden Pond. I read this somewhere years ago. How on his, and he was known to be a doubter. Uh, I don't know if he was an atheist. He definitely was an agnostic of some sort. And somebody asked him, Mr. Thoreau, he was on his deathbed, have you made your peace with God? And Thoreau, supposedly the infidel, always to the, to the end, said, made my peace with God? Well, I, I was not aware that we'd ever had an argument. So people just assume they're okay with God because they're such nice people. You know, that, that's the qualification for being in God's good graces in the minds of many people. They're, they're, just, they're just so nice. But that's not what the Bible teaches. In the end, God will honor each person's conscience, so they think, just because they're nice. And we just heard with our own ears the Word of God declares that if we don't honor the Son of God, there's no way to honor God the Father Himself. And there's no other way. Now, by the way, let's ask this question. We're following, we're trying to be logical here, aren't we? If we can't honor God the Father without believing in and honoring God the Son then how do we honor God the Son? Now, the average evangelical, oh, I honor Jesus by taking him into my heart, by trusting him, by going forward at the altar call. Well, why don't we let Jesus himself tell us how we honor him? He tells us in Scripture, we honor him. If you love me, if you honor me, what? Obey my commandments. Most people like to believe that they're doing the best they can as far as their religious and spiritual lives are concerned. They don't see themselves as intentionally trying to disobey God by believing that there's some other way to God other than through Jesus Christ. But people who think like that need to take a hard look at Joseph in Egypt. Pharaoh decreed that in all the land and all the property of Egypt, no one else but G Joseph could open up the storehouses of grain. 
and no one else but Jesus of Nazareth can open the storehouses of heaven so that our souls might be filled. John chapter 3 again. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Life overflowing in abundance. That doesn't mean just life after you die. It means abundant life both now and in the world to come. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see Zoe, God kind of life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So the first point, the way of salvation can't be made any other simpler than that, any other way. It's Joseph appointed by the king who opened the storehouses. And the second point is similar to that, that Joseph was the best person to open those storehouses. He was the one who made the suggestion to the Pharaoh about storing up the grain in the first place. And so it's only therefore proper that he should be the one to control them. Just as Joseph was the most obvious choice to control the storehouses of grain, so too is the Lord Jesus the best person that God the Father should send to redeem his people. Now look again at Genesis 41, verse 49. Joseph gathered very much grain as the sand of the sea until he stopped counting, for it was immeasurable. In other words, this was an immense effort on Joseph's part. He orchestrated the gathering of tons and tons of grain. He actually did something. He accomplished a task that had been set before him to do. I'm trying to emphasize that because Jesus did the same thing. I wonder if we fully understand that Jesus too was given a task by his father, a mission to accomplish, past tense. I've got to ask that question because there's so many people, especially in our largely fundamentalist Armenian Baptist, Bible church dominated culture here. They have this poor understanding of what Jesus actually did accomplish while he was on this earth. Because in the popular mentality, if Jesus can be said to accomplish anything, it's that he made salvation a possibility for people who might one day make up their minds to, quote, get saved. No, according to Scripture, According to Jesus himself, according to the testimony of the entire Bible and the New Testament and the creeds and confessions of the church almost from the beginning, Jesus won the salvation of his people. He accomplished the task his father gave him, and that task was this, save my people from their sins. Let me just give you a a short uh, smattering, if you will, just a, just a little dipping in here and there to prove this in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Notice the, defin- the definiteness, the, the solid accomplishment of, of a particular task, accomplishing a particular thing for a particular group of people. Romans 8, 31 to 33. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And then in Galatians 1, Paul writes, referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from the present evil world according to the will of God and our Father to whom be glory forever. 
Just as Joseph was given a definite task, so too was our Lord given the task. And with both Joseph and Jesus, the mission was accomplished. It wasn't just thrown out there as a bare possibility. It wasn't God votes for you to become saved. The devil votes against you to become saved. You cast a deciding vote. No, no, no. That may be popular in your backwoods Bible church with the doors open on a Sunday night with the bugs flying around inside. I don't think they even have churches like that anymore. They used to be. But that's not Bible. That's not what Scripture teaches. As I just shared with you, Scripture teaches what in the Reformed faith, what the Bible teaches as definite atonement. Limited atonement. You mean to tell me that Christ didn't die for all people everywhere at all times? I'm telling you what the Bible says. When, when, when the Bible says he died for us, it, it, it's saying something other than he died for everyone. Now I'm saying this, he died for everyone who will believe in him. But you see, if, if you really believe that Christ accomplished something, and if what he accomplished was the salvation of every person who's ever lived and will live, then that means we, we have to embrace universalism, that everyone is saved. There, there's, there's no one damned, there's no one condemned. But that's not what Scripture teaches either. So the redemption is for a specific group of people. We see this in the calling of Abraham, the, the, the defining of the Old Testament church, the people of Israel, to the exclusion of all the pagans. Now we believe, let's get this straight, we believe that before Jesus returns, he will return, and when he does return, he will return to a saved world in a broad sense. Not that every person on the face of the planet, of the earth, will be saved, but that the vast majority of people will become that way as the church moves forward in time and history and expands the kingdom of God by his grace. Third point, Joseph actually opened the storehouses. And this is part of the same thing in, in number two, that there's a definite accomplishment here. He not only gathered the grain, he gave it out. And Joseph opened those storehouses just at the right time. In verse 56, again from the New American Standard, when the famine was spread over all the face of the earth, then Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, and the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. And those storehouses... From best as we can deduce from Scripture, those storehouses remained open while the famine lasted. As long as there's somebody hungering for nourishment, the storehouse was open. And, and we see the parallel with the work of Jesus. He opens the storehouse of God's grace. The Lord will not turn away any who sincerely hunger after his salvation. Well, I thought you just said Jesus didn't die for everybody. I'm saying it again. He died for those who sincerely desire the salvation. Fourthly, and finally, Joseph opened them up for all who came. Verse 57, So all countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain, because the famine was severe in all lands. Genesis 41, 57, New King James Version. People came from far and wide for food. And this is also the nature of salvation. We saw this on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 4. We, we see it in the broad sweep of Jesus saying, Go and make the nations my disciples. So all people everywhere are to be brought under the umbrella of God's gracious mercy and grace. Because the salvation is for all kinds of people. Not just a handful here in this room. 
not just a group of people who have a certain last name. In Joseph's case, any and everyone who, buy the, who wanted to buy the grain could do so. There's nothing here to give us the slightest idea that anyone who came to Joseph for food was sent away empty-handed. Now, having said that, it's certainly possible that with so many people traveling to Egypt from some faraway place, somebody may have gone along for the ride who really didn't ask for any food. Maybe some people thought they didn't really need the grain. Maybe they thought, let's see if this doesn't sound familiar. Maybe they thought they could get along by freeloading off of somebody else. Maybe they thought the famine wouldn't directly affect them. Well, in that case... Those people, if they were such people, if there were such people, they got exactly what they asked for. Nothing. And here is where we see a major difference between the work of Joseph and the work of Christ Jesus. Because Joseph sold the grain, Jesus doesn't charge a dime for redemption. God's salvation is a free gift. And that is one reason, one among many, but it's definitely a reason that sinful men and women find it so hard to accept it. The heavenly bread offered to us by Christ doesn't cost us anything because it cost Jesus everything. He was willing to pay that debt for us, for all who were appointed to believe in him. But if we today, if someone thinks that they have no no bread, uh, excuse me, no need for the bread of life, no need for the food of salvation, well then, They won't ask for it, will they? We won't ask for it if we think that way. Or maybe maybe you know someone. I'm assuming nobody in here would be this way. But maybe, I'll just use it in this sense, maybe we're a person or people who think that we can freeload off the faith of somebody else. You know, some folks think that because their wife or their husband or their parents go to church and serve God, that somehow they can rely on somebody else's faith and somebody else's service for their own redemption and salvation. If you know anyone who thinks that way, you need to tell them. They're terribly mistaken. Because we can no more rely on somebody else's faith to redeem us than we can rely on somebody else eating their own food to fill up our stomachs. Joseph's work here was done on the authority of the king. And that was the best, that he was the best person for the job. He opened those storehouses, and he opened them to all who came for food. And we have hopefully learned how all this points us in some way to the authority and the work of the ministry of Jesus. A little over 30 years ago, in 1985 to be exact, there was a very disturbing story that hit the news headlines about how in LAX, Los Angeles International Airport, in the Customs Department, there was this very large suitcase that went unclaimed for a number of days. It was discovered there, and the custom agents, of course, opened the suitcase, and they were shocked by what they found inside of it. Inside that large suitcase was the curled-up body of an unidentified young woman. According to the coroner, she'd been dead for about two days. An investigation revealed that she was the wife of an Iranian man who was living in the United States. His wife tried several times to obtain a visa to enter the United States, but the U.S. denied her every time. She was turned down. And so she, wanting to be united to her husband, tried to get into the country her own way. 
She took matters into her own hands and attempted to smuggle herself into America via the cargo bay of an airliner. See, to that young woman, the plan seemed simple enough, though I'm sure she thought it was a bit risky. But see, this is true of how some people think that they can plan their own way into salvation. They don't care what God has said about it. Some people believe that they will enter God's kingdom on their own if they are reasonably good citizens or good church attenders or nice people. But hopefully, as we have learned today, from this comparison between Joseph and Jesus, there is only one who can secure our redemption and who has secured it. And any plan of our own design will prove not only foolish, but ultimately fatal. May we, by God's grace, be kept from such faulty, foolish thinking. Let us pray.